Uh, motivation is, is so important uh, in our actions. We, read, we see that in the Sermon on the Mount. We see that in, in so much of what we read uh, in the Scriptures. You know, we were talking, um, oh, it, it was in some venue. It must have been a small, I think it was either Tuesday night, Wednesday morning. It might have been last Shabbat, but I don't think so. About how in Deuteronomy, uh, in the Shema, but not just the Shema, but going back to the beginning of Deuteronomy chapter 6, there's a command to fear and a command to love in the very same context. Isn't that interesting? The command to fear and the command to love. And those are emotions. Those, are, those have to do with motivations. So it's not just about do this or do that. It's about fearing and loving God all in the right way. See? And when we live that way, there's a real balance in our lives uh, this is not a Bible study on fear and love, but just that we understand this issue of motivation, see? Uh, and, and that we, we're not doing things just to like jump through hoops or just to get it right or anything like that. That, that is not about our giving. It's not about how we live. It's not about uh, the kingdom of uh, God. It's not about our demonstrating life and Messiah. It's all about motivation, which ends up in service and loving God and living out his, uh, his word via the power of the Ruach HaKodesh. So it's like all one thing when it comes to like our giving and our living. It's, they're all parts of worshiping uh, the, the Lord. And, uh, you know, um, I said last week that uh, I have this uh, statement that I, that I uh, continually work on all the time, uh, about our vision and our mission, and because it's always nuanced. There's, you know, it's hard to come up with just uh, uh, a few words that really encapsulate everything that we do. Uh, that actually has meaning. You know, we could say, uh, you know, our vision is to love the Lord. Well, great. You know, that that's great. But where's the meat on the bones? Uh, you know, and so there are are layers of vision and mission and strategy as we follow the Lord. But when Yeshua came, you know, uh, uh, he, as well as Yochanan, John, the immerser, John the Baptist, they both started off with the very same words, you know, behold, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, right? Uh, and so in a way, that is, that is a message, but it's the vision, and the vision is, in a sense, the message, you know? Uh, the repenting is the action. The vision is the, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Uh, and, of course, we read in the Gospel of John, it is, it, it's coming and now is, you know. Uh, and, and so uh, we said last week that one of the manifestations of that for us is the issue of forgiveness and reconciliation on all different kinds of levels. And I thought that today would be appropriate for us to simply understand the most basic element of it, that, uh, that Messiah the King has come. And, uh, and then making some uh, basic applications of living in light of, uh, of that in terms of accountability uh, uh, to God and living in context. And, uh, and so I thought that that would be appropriate because, you know, this time of year, we all live in, we all live in a context and this is really very important, uh, very important to understand. We live in a context. Just as we 
Uh, if you've ever taken a class on biblical hermeneutics or a Bible study on just uh, anything in the Bible, <laughs> you know that the context of a passage, where it's located and how it's used, is very, very important. Uh, not only in terms, you know, this is true, not only in terms of the meaning of a whole passage, but even when, you know, you could say, but when you know the original languages, everything is crystal clear. Well, you know what? There's something called syntax. Syntax. S-Y-N, right? Uh, T-A-X. Which has to do with how are words formed in a context. So the location is very important of the, of the meaning of a text. Very important. Even if you sell real estate, right? You know the three main things. Location, location, location. It's true in the Bible as well. And not only in the Bible, but also in real life. Because we live in a context. We live in a context. We live in the 21st century. We may live in a Jewish, we may be Jewish, live in a Jewish community. We may be Italian and live in an Italian community. We may be white, we might be black, we might be from Africa, we might be from Asia, and we live in a particular context. And now it's not that the meaning of the text changes uh, depending on the context of our life, but that no, but the application of a text uh, needs to take into consideration the context of our life. Now, you might be saying, oh, that's obvious. But you know what? We sometimes tend to attract folks, sometimes, that like to uh, live out of context. Live out of context. Just as we might interpret the Bible out of context, like, for example, uh, taking a, a passage out of context uh, might be... Um, I'll, I'll take an extreme, of course. Uh, when the Torah says to, like, stone your, your child uh, when they're uh, 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 not obedient, you take them to the elders of the city and, and, you, and you stone them, right? Uh, there are some who, would say, who, who might be challenged in their own lives to do that because that's what the Bible says. But not taking into context that passage in and of itself or the world in which they live. Sometimes we take a passage out of context when we say... Um, I, you know, it says in Philippians I, that I can do all things in Messiah who strengthens me. All, anything, I, no matter what it might be, you know, and all things are mine in, in, in Messiah. And so I'm declaring that as I'm proclaiming, you know, the word, the word that comes out of my mouth is like the word of God. And so therefore that thing is mine and I'm claiming this and claiming that. And so taking that out of, out of context. When we take it out of context, we end up, it, it's like we're going in a, it's like we're, you got your GPS going and one, one little mistake and you can end up in the wrong state, you know? Or the trajectory of the rocket that goes up, one, I don't even know what the smallest little, uh, you know, uh, um, measurement might be, but one little tiny measurement error and you're off, right? And so in the same way, when we take the word out of context or we live out of context, that's what happens. We don't live in the 1800s. We don't live in the 17th century. And I don't know about you, but we don't live in the first century, you know? But even if we did, as we'll see uh, today, 
uh, uh, that Yeshua lived in a context. Right? Here is the incarnation of the God of Israel, of the God of the universe. Okay? When he was born into this world, he lived a Jewish life in Judea. He didn't live in India. He didn't live in Syria. He was Jewish by design. And uh, uh, not only that, but he lived uh, under Roman authority. He didn't reject it. And he didn't rebel against it, even though he was accused of that. In fact, what does he say about, he, about the taxes? Give Caesar what belongs to Caesar, right? And so he lived in the context of a world, yet at the very same time, he displayed a radical selflessness in varieties of ways. A radical selflessness, a radical love, but not out of context in the world in which he lived. That's why he didn't isolate himself. That's why he was not viewed as some strange being from another planet, you know, uh, uh, that sometimes we can be seen as when we isolate ourselves and when we live out of context in the world in which we live. And so that's important. That's important because we live in a world uh, uh, today that uh, uh, can cause great confusion in making decisions and in the way that we live our lives. And, uh, uh, you know, as a Jewish believer in Messiah, uh, someone, uh, and, and perhaps you're, you fall into this category, maybe you don't, uh, of growing up uh, normatively Jewish, in other words, not discovering it later in life, but having in the memory bank the entire history of your life, you know, in a, in a normative, I'll even say a normative American Jewish uh, a community and experience, and you become a believer in Yeshua at some point along the way as an adult, even a young adult. When you come to this time of year, Christmas time, there is, in a sense, this... Now, if you've been around a long time, you don't really... Maybe you don't experience it anymore, but I'll bet that you could think back on this and have had this experience, and maybe some of you are experiencing now, that messianic identity crisis thing, that, you know... We're, we're told, yes, Yeshua's Jewish, it's Jewish to believe in Yeshua, but as we look around us, we have to say, wait, am I really, is it really Jewish? <laughs> you know, wait, is this thing really Jewish? And uh, I, uh, for whatever reason, I, uh, it's important for us to have that affirmation and to, you know, and to know that, right? I, and to... Uh, uh, be assured that believing in Yeshua is indeed a Jewish thing, right? Uh, and of course, no matter who we are as believers, and this is also very, very important, we live in a context, we live in a world uh, where everything around us cries out of a make-believe perfection uh, in the world in which we live. And so no matter who you are as a Messiah follower, and you look around, I mean, unless you don't breathe, uh, you know, you see all kinds of things around you that make you think that, wow, it isn't as good as it used to be. It never was any good. We don't measure up. Or, you know, I, I, uh, things of that nature. I, uh, when you look at the, you know, you watch your movies or you, watch, or you see your advertising, uh, all that. So it's important for us 
to be affirmed that, yes, faith in Yeshua is right. Faith in Yeshua is, he is indeed the, the Jewish Messiah. Uh, and uh, it's important for us not to uh, uh, react in such a way that we almost like negate the birth of Yeshua. Like, like it's not important at all, ever, because I, I, you know, I don't want to have anything to do uh, with Christmas. I, and you see, we have to remember and recognize we live in a context of, of this world. And, and so it's important uh, for us uh, uh, not necessarily to go to extremes in, in, uh, in any direction, you know, and to recognize, okay, this is the world in which, which I live, and I, I uh, you know, look at, uh, for some of us, uh, yes, we celebrate a Christmas. No, we don't celebrate Christmas. Whatever the, the case may be, as the conviction is uh, on, your, uh, on your life. But may it be true that we recognize that the truth that's hidden in all of that, you know, uh, that yes, uh, God has manifested himself in this world. And, you know, it's really not that important as to what date that was. You know, it's not really important. What is important is that we don't lose our focus of who Yeshua is uh, at this time of year. Uh, and that we can, uh, uh, you know, be who we, we can be true to ourselves without leaving this, uh, without uh, leaving this world, so to speak. Now, what I mean by that is this, and this is actually, there's some other very important things to say here, but I just think it's important for us to, to say this because in our movement oftentimes, I, uh, we have uh, people who are not Jewish, almost 100% of the time, almost, so that makes it like 99 plus percent of the time, who are not Jewish, who have the biggest problem with Christmas. It's almost, I will say, in 40 years, that is true, in, in my observation. And oftentimes it's because of a reaction to growing up with all kinds of baggage related to this holiday. You know, and now I've come to the true faith in Messiah, and so now uh, it's it's pagan, it's this, it's that, it's uh, you know, okay. And I I feel sorry for people that are so hung up uh, on that, uh, because you know in the Scripture uh, there is a perfect illustration, a great illustration of what God cares about the most. And as Jewish believers, let me tell you my experience. My first experience with Christmas. Uh, never having uh, celebrated Christmas. And believe it or not, not uh, uh, missing it. Can you believe that? People, how many times, how many times did you, how do you, how do you live without it? You know? And, um, uh, and what, that's why I say growing up in a normative American Jewish experience, generally speaking, you don't miss Christmas. Because uh, unless your parents say to you, you see that? Don't you wish that was all yours? You know what I mean? Now, there's something wrong with that, right? Uh, and, and so I would say, I always viewed it kind of like somebody else's birthday party. You know what I mean? It was like, so what? This is not our, it's not who we are. 
so that I don't miss it. It's because it's not who we are, you know? Uh, that's, that's how I grew up. Uh, and, um, but, so when I became a believer in Yeshua, I became a believer in the month of August. So we get to December. And so what do you do? It's like, this is all uncharted territory, uncharted waters. And you have to understand, this was a number of years ago, and I did not live in a city with a Messianic Jewish congregation. And, uh, you know, and, and, and even, the, even the Messianic movement was not as mature as it is now in those days. Like, we're, everybody was kind of figuring it out, okay? So, I, I, when I came to know the Lord, I uh, um, was uh, going with this Jewish girl uh, who was a believer. So we were kind of experiencing this together who went on to marry a lovely man and live in, uh, in another country as missionaries. It's a whole other story. But anyway, because uh, uh, it's always a question. Anyway, no, it wasn't Janet, right? Okay, so we come to uh, December, thir- uh, December 24th, and we think, well, okay, this is what people do, right? So we went to a church, right? And so they had uh, Messiah's table, right? And so we did that, and, uh, and then at the end of the service, we said, good yontif, you know? It's like a Jewish holiday, I guess, right? Because, you know, Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. And then, uh, what, do, what do we do? It's like nowhere to go, and it was snowing. This is in Buffalo, it's snowing, and, and it was nice. So we went uh, to the uh, parking lot of a big shopping center, of a big mall, and so we decide, well, we'll read like the passage. So we'll read something from the, the Bible and we'll sing, we'll sing songs, uh, you know, about uh, the birth of the Messiah. That's what people do. Because what do we know, right? So we start singing. Now it's really cold, right? And the car's on, right? And after a while, we noticed we were getting a little giddy, you know, like laughing. And then we realized that the carbon monoxide was uh, somehow affecting us. So then we had to call it quits and go home. But, um, but uh, what I'm trying to say is, it, we weren't hung up on it. It wasn't like, you know, I, it was not a big deal uh, to us. But then as time goes on, uh, you, you, there are different, uh, you know, uh, cultural uh, reasons for celebrating, not celebrating. It's all, it's very complicated. It has to do with family and you know, and lots of things, right? So there's a passage, you know, in Zechariah chapter uh, 7, okay? And uh, in, uh, in Zechariah chapter 7, there uh, you read that um, after the Babylonian captivity, people came to the priests and wanted to know if they should continue observing certain fasts that had to do not with Yom Kippur, but with the times in which they had lived, like the fast of Gedalia and the, the, the varieties of fasts having to do with the destruction of the temple, and they had lived 70 years in captivity. And so the question becomes, should we continue to do this? Okay? All right. So they keep asking this question, right? So you see it at the end of verse 3. Shall I weep in the fifth month and abstain as I have done these many years? Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Say to all the people of the land and to the priests, 
When you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh month, these 70 years, see, it had to do with fasts having to do with the captivity, right? These 70 years. Was it actually for me that you fasted? Okay. And when you eat and drink, do you not eat for yourselves? Do you not drink for yourselves? That's the answer. He doesn't say yes or no. Much like Yeshua, very much like Yeshua, right? Because Yeshua is indeed the incarnation of the Lord, and so of course. And so he answers a question with a question so that one might question themselves. Are you doing it for me? So the Lord is not so much concerned that you continue to abstain, or you continue to fast, and what was the motivation, well, you know, what was the original context, or what, where does it come from, but are, are, you, are you doing it for me? And that is always a question we have to ask ourselves about everything that we do. Everything that we do. Are we doing it unto the Lord? When uh, the Apostle Paul says, whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. He doesn't say, figure out, make sure you do the right thing and do it for the glory of God. But whatever you do in life, do it for the glory of God. In whatever context you live, in whatever the makeup of your family is, in whatever that tradition is, do it for the glory of God. And be convinced in your own heart. And uh, that does put some responsibility on us, doesn't it? Uh, to make those uh, decisions. And so that is, you know, I think um, uh, very important uh, to understand when we talk about living in, in context. Now, so getting back to this issue of uh, remembering, you know, who Yeshua is, it is uh, uh, important for us to recognize that the incarnation of the Messiah is absolutely important to who we are. Not the sentimentality of this celebration. And, and I would just say this, that, you know, what, what, uh, the way that uh, the birth of the Messiah is celebrated, Christmas, is, um, uh, I would refer to it in its best, uh, the best way, a non-Jewish uh, a demonstration of uh, celebrating the birth of Messiah in the best, uh, in the best uh, uh, context. Anything gets distorted, and certainly there's a million distortions. <laughs> I mean, we're, we're surrounded by distortions uh, of that. Uh, but uh, that, is, uh, that is what it is. It's, uh, uh, that, there you go. But it, so it's important for us to remember in the context of the world in which we live that uh, the coming into this world of the Lord manifested in a human being is absolutely part of the promise that God made to our forefathers and absolutely is demonstrated throughout the Bible and uh, has culminated in uh, the incarnation of the King of Israel. Okay, so very important that we, uh, you know, that we understand that. So, uh, you know, in the beginning, we could say, uh, in Genesis, God is manifested as a character in the story. What do I mean by that? In the beginning, God talks to people. People talk to God. Uh, uh, Abraham uh, talks to God. God talks to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Uh, in the Joseph story, we see that um, God does not manifest himself, but yet uh, there is firmly an understanding of God is at work in the lives of the, uh, of the people. God is not a force. 
God is not a thing. Uh, God is not, uh, you know, just an idea, right? That God is real. Not only that, but he has, he has um, attributes that we would call human attributes, right? Uh, he grieves. He rejoices. He promises. He chastises. Things that human beings do. In the pagan world, God was much more of a force to be reckoned with and not personal. What I'm describing is the fact that the God of Israel, from in the beginning, is personal and is involved in people's lives. There is a book, I remember many years ago, Jacob uh, Neusner wrote a book called The Incarnation of God. And I thought, well, that's an interesting book for a Jewish uh, writer to write The Incarnation of God. And what, he, what the book is about is that in rabbinic literature, uh, God is uh, uh, anthropomorphic. That there's, God is portrayed in like human form all throughout rabbinic literature. And not only that, but the ancient rabbis become, in his words, the word, the Torah made flesh. And that the way the rabbis conduct themselves in the rabbinic stories and the midrash and all that uh, is like the living testimony of the Torah. And I thought, well, isn't that interesting? Because the New Covenant, we could say, is Jewish literature. And in there, we see uh, the Messiah is the Word made flesh. The difference is, is that he really is the one, as opposed to in, in the uh, rabbinic literature, that, that we have Yeshua really is the Word made flesh. Uh, he really does uh, live out the word uh, of God. And he's not just an anthropomorphism, he is a real human being. See? Uh, and throughout the uh, Bible, uh, God manifests himself. In Genesis, he manifests uh, himself clearly uh, to Abraham. Uh, and one of the clearest is, uh, you know, in, in the book of Joshua, uh, we read of the captain of the Lord of hosts. We read in uh, Judges about uh, the angel of the Lord who manifests himself uh, to Manoah, who is the father of Samson, right? And Samson says, what's your name? And he says, "Uh, it's too wonderful for you to know. And then Samson, his testimony is, I have seen God and lived. And there are others as well, okay? So it should come as no surprise to us that at some point in history, there would not just be, God would not just appear as a human being, but that he would come into this world through the womb and live a human, uh, a human life. Okay? Uh, and now it's interesting that uh, in, the, uh, in the scripture, we see uh, uh, that God raises up Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and, and Joseph and and, uh, and others, to be a mirror of, of who he is, one might say, in the world. Now, all of us as human beings are, in that sense, uh, 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 you know, as it says in Psalm 8, a little lower than the angels. But we see specific people that, in a sense, represent uh, his rulership uh, in, uh, in the world. And uh, in this week's Torah portion... In uh, uh, Genesis chapter 49, when uh, Jacob uh, prophesies over his sons and he comes to uh, Judah 
in just in verse 10 of chapter 49, the scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. The only point I want to make there is that we see that uh, a descendant of Judah is called to be a king. A king over Israel and a king over the peoples, over the nations. And this is what we could call a universal messianic prophecy. Whether you are talking to a rabbi or you're talking to a Christian scholar or Bible teacher, this is a messianic passage uh, about uh, a King Messiah. Okay? Uh, and uh, so we see that there is indeed this promise. So this is looking forward. God raises up individuals to be his primary spokesperson. Uh, and then uh, he promises that there will be these, um, uh, these uh, kings. There will be a, a king. Uh, and as time goes on, God raises up a king. He raises up Saul, and then he raises up uh, 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 David. And we see that the kings uh, uh, are uh, understood to be called the, the son of God. In Psalm 2, for example, right? Uh, and uh, you see in Psalm 2 something very interesting uh, takes place. And as the word is given progressively over time, we see something happening with this designated king. Okay? And it's this. So we see in Psalm 2, see in verse 7 it says, uh, I will surely, well, verse 6, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell the decree of the Lord. He said to me, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. So this is what's called a coronation psalm. This is a psalm that would be read every time a king uh, came to, at the inauguration of a king. Okay? That the recognition that the king is God's agent on the throne, okay? God's man on the throne, okay? And then in here, there's a refrain that the king is speaking. And the king, the refrain is, I will surely tell the decree of the Lord. He said to me, thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. So the king on the throne of David in Jerusalem is understood to be this, this one representative of God, the son of God, right? Okay, but everybody knows it's just a man. Everybody knows David was only a man, uh, you know, and Solomon was only a man, and they were all men. But notice, if you go down toward the end of the chapter, there's something that it's a little confusing. Because in verse 10, it says, Now therefore, O kings, show discernment, take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Now that we can understand. Like, you know, I uh, recognize all you nations that there's only one God and we need to worship him. But then look what it says right after that. Do homage to the Son, lest he become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all those who take refuge in him. So it's kind of like, wait a minute. Do we take refuge in, do we pay homage to the earthly king or, or to God? Do we take refuge in the, in the king on the throne that I consider? Do I take refuge in God? And there seems to be like this blurring of the lines that begins to unfold between the king and God, all right? Uh, and we see this, uh, I'm not going to take the time, we see it in lots and lots of places, but boy, a passage that we like to uh, read on Sukkot in uh, Zechariah, 
chapter 14. How confusing is this? When we talk about uh, a king sitting on the throne, all right, uh, just one verse. We'll read the verse on um, uh, verse 16. Then it will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and celebrate the Feast of Booths. Forget about the Feast of Booths for a minute, but worship the king, the Lord of hosts. So now wait a minute. Which one is it? Is it a king that is descended from David, you know, a human being, or is it the Lord of hosts? Which one is it? Now, to compound this issue, we read in another place in the book of Daniel, about in chapter 7, I'll just, for the sake of time, I'll just mention Daniel chapter 7, where, where we read there about the Son of Man coming in the clouds, right? And he's the one who's going to be king, and he's going to establish the kingdom of God. So now we have a Son of Man coming in the clouds, we have uh, this Son of God, and I'm not quite sure, is the Son of God just, you know, a designation for uh, an earthly king? What's going on? And this was swirling around in the first century. All these ideas swirling around. Who is this? What is this? Is it a demigod, a second god, a junior god? Is it not? Of course it can't be. What? What is it? What is it? When Yeshua comes and God is not the author of confusion, but of clarity, he brings clarity to this whole thing of who's who and what it means, right? And so in one place, in the Gospel of Luke, in chapter 1, and you're familiar with this, I know, right? When Mary is confused, and rightfully so, what is happening to me, right? The angel comes, and what do we read here? Uh, The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb, and you will bear a son. You shall name him Yeshua. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, i.e., the Son of God. Right? Okay? And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. You cannot get any clearer than that, that this is the king of Israel. (laughs) Okay, this is the the king of it. This is the messianic king of Israel. There had not been a king in a really long time. A real king for hundreds of years. There was one that was sort of like, uh, not really, but kind of in the, you know, before Yeshua was born. But really going back to the, before the Babylonian captivity. Okay, And so you cannot get any clearer that this is truly, he's the king of the Jews. He is indeed the king of Israel. And so therefore, call the son of, 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 uh, of God, son of the most high. But you know, it's very interesting. If you turn to Matthew chapter 26, right here in verse, 60, um, uh, verse uh, 63, okay, 2663, okay? So they're challenging Yeshua, right? Uh, and, uh, and the high priest says to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Messiah, the Son of God. That's a very important statement. You're the king. Are you the Messianic king? All right? Yeshua said to him, oh, Yeshua always does this, answers, he's, see, he does not take the bait. Remember this always. He does not feel obligated to answer the exact question being asked of him. 
But what he does is he answers the person, okay? Remember that. Yeshua said to him, you have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power, coming in the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robe, saying, he has blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you have now heard this blasphemy. Okay? So what is it that gets him riled up? That he says he's the Son of Man coming in the clouds. He doesn't just say, yes, I'm the Messianic King. Yes, I'm the, the Messiah, the Son of God. I'm the Son of Man coming in the clouds. Okay? And, and so now they say he's blasphemed because he has identified himself as the Lord. He has identified himself uh, as uh, the Lord. And so you see, he is the King who is indeed the Lord just as we see in Psalm 2 and in Zechariah chapter 14. And in, you know, in John chapter 8 and verse 58, he says, Before Abraham was, I am. I am. And I just want uh, to say that uh, I would suggest that we not run back to the burning bush on that. Uh, that, that that's true. You know, he says, I am. Uh, but I... Uh, I would run to Isaiah myself, because in Isaiah, right after chapter 40, in a number of places, in Greek, of course, in John 8, 58, it's in Greek, ego eimi, right? Well, it's very interesting that in Isaiah uh, 43.10, Isaiah, we can go there, because I wrote down a whole bunch of them. Okay. He says here, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, Right? And my servant, whom I have chosen, in order that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, and there will be none after me. Okay? And then I, even I, am the Lord. You see it over and over again. Ego, amy. Ego, amy. I am the Lord. He, do, he identifies himself as the creator. He identifies himself as the uh, 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 savior. You see it also in verse 25 of Chapter 43, I, even I, am the one who wipes out all your transgressions. For my own sake, I will not remember your sins. Ego, amy, the same term. You see it in chapter 45, you see it in chapter 48, you see it in chapter 52. And I would suggest that what Yeshua is saying in, in there is, I am that one. I am the beginning. I am the end. I am the creator. I am the redeemer. Uh, and that's uh, who he identifies himself indeed with the God of Israel. And he is the king and he is uh, the one who takes away our sins. Uh, he is indeed uh, the, uh, the redeemer. Okay. Uh, and, uh, and so therefore, uh, we see here that uh, Yeshua is indeed the promised one. And I won't take the time, it's late, but in Isaiah chapter 9, in Isaiah chapter 11, and in Jeremiah chapter 23, and, and elsewhere, we see prophetic statements about the king who is more than a king. And this all becomes clear in the person of Messiah. And so Yeshua is indeed... Uh, Yeshua is indeed, now I see it, the uh, Messiah uh, of Israel, of the Jews. Okay, 
And, uh, and I wanted to close by reading something. Okay, let's, let's just take a minute. Now I see where my confusion has come. <clears throat> Sam Nadler, about a year ago, wrote a response to a question when he wrote in somewhere, some, for, some place, about how Yeshua is indeed the king of the Jews. And so someone responded and asked him a question and sort of, sort of like chastising him, saying, well, he's the king of everyone. Okay, so Sam, rather than just saying, oh, yes, 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 of course he's the king of everyone, he responded to this in a very, uh, just in a great way. So uh, I just want to read what he, how he responded in the closing. Okay? Okay. When someone on the Word of Messiah Facebook page took exception to my comment that Yeshua is king of the Jews and said he's not king of the Jews, he's the king of everyone who believes in him, I responded, uh, uh, on the matter. And here it is for you all. So he says, I certainly agree, sir, that Yeshua is king of all, and indeed he's the king of kings and the Lord of lords as well. I don't mean to be in any way impolite, my brother. Can't you just hear Sam Nadler saying this? I, I, my brother, but you may be missing the point and the significance of the phrase king of the Jews. Please allow me to explain, dear brother. In Scripture, King of the Jews is considered the equivalent as saying King of Israel. Also, King of the Jews in our English version may be rightly to be understood as King of the Judeans as Jews, is often used as abbreviations in English for Judeans. But King of the Jews or Judeans is actually quite significant, since Messiah was prophesied as coming from the tribe of Judah to be ruler to whom would be the obedience of the peoples. Thus, the true Messiah of Israel or the Jews, if you wish, would be the savior of the world. So king of the Jews would be a way of reflecting on his prophetic credentials. In fact, Matthew appears to make this a focus as he records the Magi asking, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. This is then followed by another prophecy of his royal birth in Bethlehem. So he goes on to describe then those passages that speak of him as the king of Israel. But then he, uh, he moves down a little further, uh, and, uh, and then he says, Then some may wonder why it is so hard for some born-again Christians to simply say that Yeshua is king of the Jews. Well, some Christians may think it's Jewish pride rearing its ugly head again. In other words, what's the problem with saying king of the Jews? You know, now he's answering that. Other uh, Christians might think that king of the Jews demeans the Lord to a lesser position than the king of all. Some Christians may think that being Jewish is inconsistent with being Christian, uh, and those Jewish believers are not quite getting the fullness of being one new man, etc. Though it may be hard for some believers, some believers to see it, uh, but all of these responses are the residual effects of the historical anti-Jewish posture of Christendom. This residual anti-Jewish predisposition may accurately reflect the concerns uh, the apostle to the Gentiles, Paul, wrote about in Romans chapter 11, that with their greater numbers, the wild branches will become arrogant against the natural branches, forgetting that along with the Jewish believers, what the Gentile believers have been grafted into is their, Israel's, own olive tree. Yes, it is still a Jewish olive tree, even though there are mostly non-Jewish branches grafted into it at this time. But think about the matter, dear brother. I'm sure you meant nothing improper at all, but others have said similar things, arrogantly reflecting the anti-Jewish posture that is contrary to the scriptures. 
And then he closes it off with some other things. So it is important for us uh, to remember that he is the king of Israel, not just Israel, like in the song, you know, but Israel, Israel, uh, the nation of Israel, Jewish people, whether we, whether people believe in him or not, he's still the king, right? He's still the messianic king, whether people actually believe in him or not. He's not the messianic king because we believe in him, right? We believe in him because he's the messianic king, see? Uh, and so that is something uh, to really rejoice in. And so, so what do we do with that? So may we live, just as Yeshua lived, in context, in the world in which he lived, uh, and may we recognize that he is indeed the king. Remember that our, and so what does that mean? Remember that your primary identity as a Messiah follower, your primary identity is in Messiah the king. Primary identity. We have many identities. We're Americans, we may come from this town, we may come from this culture, and nothing wrong with all of that. But our primary identity is in Messiah Yeshua, Right? We all want to have an inheritance. We all may be saving for the future, but our primary inheritance is saved up for us in heaven and that nothing can happen to because it comes from the king, right? Okay, we need to love uh, the people around us in the context in our world in which we live. So we live out this primary identity in this context of this world in which we live. We remember that our inheritance is heaven in the context in, which, in the world in which we live. We love others in the context of the world in which we live. And we make choices in that context. Remember that we are accountable to Yeshua the King. That our desire is to serve Yeshua the King. Again, in the context of the world in which we live. Not leaving the world in which we live to do these things, but, but living as uh, as Jewish believers, as Gentile believers, as Americans, uh, with our primary identity in Yeshua, taking all those other things into consideration. We need to remember that inheritance that we have that comes from God, yet at the same time living in the context of the world in which we live, planning for the future. We need to love others in this world, taking into consideration the screwed up nature of this world, but yet loving people, uh, in a radical way, according to the context in which we live. And making choices, remembering that, that Yeshua is our Lord, but making choices, remembering he's our Lord in the context of the world in which uh, we live. And so what a great, wonderful God we have uh, that came into this world as promised to be the King of Israel. And may it be our goal as Messiah followers to share this great message with the world around us, that Yeshua is indeed the King of Israel. Let's pray. Lord uh, God, we thank you, Lord, for Yeshua, our Messiah. And we thank you, God, that he did manifest himself into this world. And may we demonstrate that not by receiving, but by giving. May we become servants, as it were, slaves of Messiah. May that be our goal. Lord, if we're going to be seen as different and an alternative uh, way of life, may it be by the way we, we love people. May it be by the way that we serve people, Lord. And God, we pray that in that way we would become attractive to people in this world. In the very same way that Yeshua showed a radical kind of love, showed a radical kind of servanthood, but was attractive to the people in his world. And people followed him. And Lord, People are still people 21 centuries later. The same hurts, same needs, same issues. Just 
wrapped up a little differently, Lord. And so may we uh, demonstrate that incarnational kind of life in the world in which we live. And we pray in Yeshua's name.